If you've got a Bible with you, if you want to turn to Luke's Gospel, we're in Luke chapter 4. Um, just Ralph and Pam, just so you do know, we were talking about what's the next wedding anniversary. It's 75, which is oak, so apparently you've used up all the metals and now you go on to wood. Um, so it will be oak at 75. We're in chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 14, some really powerful words that we find here. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and rolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked through the crowd and went on his way. Let's just pause for a moment and let's pray, shall we? Lord, as we picture this scene at the start of your earthly ministry, I just want to pray that this morning we will reflect on how you set out what you came to do. Lord, help us align ourselves with your kingdom purposes, we pray this morning. And if we're out of kilter, would you bring us back on track, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We're a few days out from what always feels to me to be the start of summer. Um, the, the school term is about to finish. You can tell it's happening because the weather is now in October and has sort of fast-forwarded a bit. But if you're anything like me, when I get to summer and I think things are going to be a bit quieter, I always have a to-do list of things I'm going to do over the summer. And it will be DIY jobs that I'll get Richard to come and do around our house. (laughs) Now he's got all that spare time on his hands. It will be um, friends that I haven't seen for a while and I think, oh, we'll catch up over the summer. And there'll be all kinds of things that that I'll just think I'll be doing. And then I get to the end of the summer and realise my plan hasn't worked out. Am I alone in that? Or do lots of us? We, We say we have all these great plans for the summer and then a lot of them don't actually take place. Keeping to a plan is hard, isn't it? Keeping to a plan, no matter how good the plan, is really difficult. 
Well, our reading today, at its heart, is Jesus' plan for his ministry. It's Jesus' announcement of what he came to do. And just to set the scene, Jesus has been tested and tempted. If you were here last week, Jesus was in the wilderness. And he's been filled with the Spirit at his baptism. He's then gone into the wilderness for 40 days. He comes out of the wilderness. He is still filled with the Spirit. And he starts to go around teaching in the synagogues around Galilee. And Luke is very keen to emphasise that Jesus, in his ministry, is fully within Judaism. Fully Jewish in his ministry. And themes that would have been prevalent in first century Judaism, like faithfulness, Sabbath, scriptures, and synagogue, are all here in this reading. But it's worth just digging down a little bit and to see, well, what is the context he's speaking in here? Let's, let's get an image of what's going on. So the Jewish synagogue was a gathering um, that could take place in any village or town where there were more than 10 Jewish men present. And it it was men at this point. They would be able to call a meeting of a synagogue. And a synagogue was, was, uh, sometimes a special building was built. This is an example. I don't think you can really see it with the sun, sun shining on there. But that's the kind of thing a synagogue would have looked like. They became very popular during the time of the exile where the temple laid in ruins, because it allowed for worship to continue without the sacrificial system. And if you were to go to a synagogue service, what would happen would be quite informal. It wouldn't be a highly structured event, but there'd be a few prayers would be said. Somebody would come and take whatever scrolls the synagogue had of the scriptures and perhaps read them out. If there was a rabbi, a teacher present, somebody would probably preach a sermon. If a rabbi wasn't present, anybody could stand up and share. Um, If there happened to be a priest there from the temple in Jerusalem, they could then offer a priestly blessing at the end. And so at the time of Jesus, this kind of interaction between synagogue and temple was quite well established. So people would worship in the synagogues week after week, and then they'd go to the temple for special occasions. And you could imagine that it would feel rather like, you know, in this country, how the parish church would have operated probably 100 years ago, the centre of the community, the place where people go primarily or, or deliberately to worship, but they also go and catch up with one another. They hear the news of what each other are doing. It's that kind of place. And Jesus comes and teaches in the synagogue. And he's there in his hometown in Nazareth. Less than 100 people probably in the room. Not a big setting. Just contrast this to last week. What did the devil offer Jesus? He offered him the kingdoms of the world, if only he would bow the knee. He offered him the rule of Rome and Parthia and all the other nations round and about. And what does Jesus do instead? He goes to his hometown, a bit of a backwater, and he stands up and he preaches in front of possibly up to 100 people. And it's just a reminder before we dig into what actually Jesus is talking about. Don't dismiss the small things. Don't dismiss those mustard seeds of the kingdom that can actually then grow into amazing things. You know, God doesn't often start big and then work us down. But he starts small, and then we go out from there. And this is what happens here. So it's in this setting that Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he unrolls it to what is now chapter 61. There'd have been no chapters in those days. Now, it must have been quite a scroll if it was all in one. Um, So it would have taken a while to find the passage. And he reads just two verses from Isaiah chapter 61. Up till now, this is nothing unusual. Rabbis all around the area would have been doing exactly the same thing. But what is unusual is what he will do with this verse, as we'll see. But we need to have a look at what is so significant about what Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, is all about. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. 
This is rooted, the hope of Isaiah roots itself way back into the law. So just bear with me a minute because we're going to dive into the book of Leviticus. Always good news, that isn't it, when we dive into the book of Leviticus. But there's a passage in Leviticus that is one of the most radical passages of the law. And it's about the year of Jubilee. Let me just get to it. I'll read this out to you. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. But it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat what is taken directly from the fields. What was at the heart of God's idea for jubilee was that every 50th year a reset button was pressed in the land of Israel. So anybody who was a slave was set free. Property would be handed back to its original owners. And it would be a time of restoration. It would be a time when everybody got a year off as well. Fancy that? Like four of Chris's sabbaticals, one after the other. I'm only jealous because I've got another three years to go before I get another one. But you might, you, that's the kind of thing that God had on his heart. And it was pressing the reset button. It meant the land could recover. And it, it was something that was absolutely incredible on paper. See, the problem was the people of Israel never really instigated it. Because once you get property, do you really want to hand it back? If you once got all your slaves, do you really want to set them free? And so human nature took over, and they never really got to implement this. But what Isaiah does is he sees back in the law this heart of God to free people, to free people from oppression, to restore people, to renew people. And then what he does is he looks forward to the time when God will do all this stuff of jubilee through the ministry of the coming Messiah. And he brings it and he pulls it all into the end times purposes of God. This is not an event that perhaps we'd be fortunate to see once in our lifetime. But this is something that will be for all times and all places. A jubilee that will go on forever and ever. Isaiah sees God's heart. So Jesus finishes reading, hands the scroll back. And it says the eyes of everyone was fastened to him. I don't know if you've ever been in a room where you know something is about to happen. We have all those things. You know, people are on tender hooks. You can hear a pin drop. All these metaphors for describing what it feels like. But you know when you're there? You know, when somebody's about to say something and you think, what on earth will they say? <clears throat> Introing a sermon is sometimes a bit of a tricky thing to do. But I've never heard a sermon intro like Jesus's. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Talk about grabbing people's attention. Today, this scripture, the hope of God for the ages, is fulfilled today. People are amazed. Who on earth is this man? You know, we can't say that, can we? We can't get a scripture and say, now this is fulfilled in me. But the Son of God can. And that's what Jesus does. And so people, first of all, they're amazed, but then they start to question, isn't this Joseph's son? Probably meaning, who on earth does he think he is? Claiming this kind of thing. But actually, many writers have said, what we find here is one of the most significant proclamations of the ages. And it takes place in this backwater in Nazareth. Many people have called it the Nazareth Manifesto. It's Jesus bringing forward the hopes that Isaiah got to see on God's heart and saying, this is for now. This is taking place. This is for today. 
Now, there are a number of by-elections, I think, happening this week, aren't there? Am I right in that? Three by-elections on Thursday? And um, it's 18 months till we get a general election. I'm sure we'll be all looking forward to all the politics that will be coming up over the coming months. And there'll be um, all kinds of manifestos written. Anyone ever read a full political party's manifesto? Joe, how, how big was it? Just... So quite big, quite detailed. And that's what political parties do, isn't it? I mean, there's always that debate, you know, should they go in the fact or fiction section in a bookshop? But anyway, that's a different story. But a manifesto sets out your whole plan for government for a term. What does Jesus do for his manifesto? Does he write a huge book? No, he simply takes a verse and a bit from the prophet Isaiah and says, this is happening now. The hope that God has put back in the law is fulfilled through Jesus and moves us forward. So let's have a look at the Nazareth Manifesto. What's it all about? Here are the words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Well, the first thing we need to say is that it's all of the Spirit. Nothing that Jesus does, nothing that we should ever do as Christians should be without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. If we try and do this in our own strength, we will fall and we will fail. This is God-ordained, spirit-empowered. It's good news to the poor. Poverty comes in many forms, but each of it destroys people. Whether it's having a lack of food, having a lack of basic material possessions, whether it's spiritual poverty, but all poverty is also on God's heart. And the idea of Jubilee is that all forms of poverty are addressed. It's not an either spiritual or practical poverty, but it's a yes and a yes and a yes. And we see that enacted through Jesus' ministry. The physically, the spiritually poor, it's all part of the same human condition. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Which prisoners? Well, actual prisoners. Yes, absolutely. People in prison. People who need to hear the good news of Jesus. But this is not about jailbreak. This is about going with the news of Jesus who frees us from our prisons. And actually, you know, a human prison is just a, a symbol of what is going on at a deeper level. And the New Testament is actually um, really enthusiastic about us going and visiting those in prison, going and ministering to people whose lives have actually hit rock bottom, who are imprisoned by sin, who are imprisoned by rebellion against God. Did anyone see the interview with Deli Ali this week that Gary Neville had done? Um, I don't, if, if you just get a chance, look it up on YouTube. Deli Ali. Um, if you don't know who he is, he was one of England's rising stars as a footballer. And his career over the last few years has taken a real downward spiral. And he has been incredibly brave, I think, and honest um, in giving an interview. And he's talked about his childhood and the trauma of his childhood. How he was abused from the age of six. How by the age of eight he was um, being sent around selling drugs to people. And just how everything really, really was, was so incredibly difficult and destructive. And then as his career started to tail off, he found that he was trying to cover that pain with destructive patterns of behaviour. And he got into addictions and all sorts of things. And just watching this interview, it's really harrowing to see you know, the pain and the anguish that he's been through. The message of Jesus comes to us, whatever prison we're in, and says there is real hope. There is absolute real hope. The power of sin, the power of Satan, the power of the um, dark forces in this world, whatever they are, whether we brought them on ourselves 
or whether they've been inflicted by other people, Jesus can bring real freedom. Freedom today and freedom forever and ever. Recovery of sight for the blind. Which blind? Well, yeah, the physically blind. Jesus often goes around healing people, and some of those people he heals are physically blind. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. But it's also the spiritually blind. Again, it's a yes and a yes. It's not an either or. It's both and. So Jesus is deeply concerned with our physical condition, but he's also deeply concerned with our spiritual condition. Why? Because we're all one. The way we exist at the moment is all one. Let's keep going. To release the oppressed. Which oppressed? Those oppressed by human powers. Absolutely. Physical slaves. Absolutely. You know, in this country, William Wilberforce, who saw through the abolition of slavery, was a man who had the gospel at his heart. And he saw that that was a natural outworking. But we're oppressed by sin, aren't we? We're oppressed by things that need heart transformation. And Jesus, as his ministry unfolds, as his work continues, will see us released from oppression. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. God has started something new. At this moment in history, as Jesus stands in the synagogue, he is saying the reign of the kingdom of God is breaking out. One writer summarises it like this. Jesus' ministry will be about spiritual restoration, moral transformation, rescue from demonic oppression, and release from illness. Now, you might read that today and think, well, just hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. This all sounds really, really good. But we're not seeing all of that just yet. You know, this morning, before I came into church, I had to take two lots of medication that helped me to function properly. I'm sure many of us, if we went round this room, are also taking all kinds of things to help us function properly. We're struggling with bad backs or with mental health issues or whatever it is. How can that be true? We may think about moral transformation. We may think, well, yeah, I can see that Jesus is doing something, but I'm still struggling. I'm still struggling with desires that I can't seem to control. I'm not complete. What about this teaching on poverty? Well, you know, there are poor people in, in our neighbourhoods. There are poor people around the world. I might be struggling with the cost of living crisis. Where's Jesus' answer to this? What about the worldly powers? What about all these things? And we'd be right in asking those questions. There's no point in saying that those things don't exist. We'd be right in asking them. But I think the answer is that God has started a work where all these things will ultimately be defeated. All these things will ultimately be made new. And actually, as Luke's Gospel goes on, we see that what starts small grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Jesus will minister for three years. He will perform all kinds of miracles. He will do the most amazing teaching. And then he will die on the cross. He will take on all those things, sin, the powers of darkness. He will defeat them and rise again. And as he comes out of that empty tomb and the new creation is brought about, we can be part of it. Absolutely. It starts the day, but it will not be complete until Jesus returns in great glory. So if we're looking at this passage and think, well, where's the evidence? Look at what God has done already in your life. Look at what God is doing in our church. Many sufferings this side of eternity won't be swept up by his kingdom rule. Some will, but not all. But one day... This hope of Isaiah that Jesus takes on will be complete and we will be whole. Are you looking forward to that day? When all of this comes to full fruition? 
But you know, this wasn't what the people of Nazareth were looking for. They were sat there in their synagogue, and they're probably thinking, who is this Jesus? He seems to be quite inspiring. Who is he? But they were looking for a Messiah that would kick out the Romans. They were looking for a physical Messiah. And so as Jesus carries on preaching, and we haven't got time this morning to go into the rest of what he says, but they get really cross with him, and they start to drive him out, and eventually they try and kill him. But I'm left pondering a couple of things from this passage, which we'll just look at very briefly. Do we recognise these verses as the ministry of our church? Have we got enough breadth to the gospel that we preach? And would we drive Jesus away if he said the same things to us today? The ministry of the gospel, the good news, goes right back from the law to the prophets to Jesus. It's not spiritual or social, but it's full human. One of the most inspiring people for me um, in this country, certainly over the last 300 years, is this man looking particularly resplendent there um, in his gowns. John Wesley, the the founder of the Methodist Church. Because what John Wesley managed to do that I don't think that many people managed to get is that total balance of you preach for salvation, you preach the cross, and you see social transformation going absolutely hand in hand. So um, where we lived before we moved to Lynn was where Wesley was born. And there was a, there was a grave um, in the graveyard outside the parish church. And it said Wesley was not allowed to preach in the church. He was too radical for the church. So they made him preach outside. Yet everybody came to listen to him. And it's just interesting, isn't it? This, this message that Jesus preaches always seems to cause problems. But what Wesley did was he would preach this absolute message of salvation. But then he would see churchyards turned into allotments to feed the poor. He would preach this message of salvation, and then the men who'd come out of the pubs, who were heavy drinkers and fighters, he said, well, don't go back into the pubs. Let's have meals together on a Friday and Saturday night. Let's do something different. Let's make sure that you're in a place where transformation can take place. Discipleship was front and centre. And over the 300 years since Wesley lived and ministered in this country, actually, we live with so many of the benefits of what this man did. Things like the welfare state, the NHS, actually, you can trace them back to the influence of this one man's ministry. As a church, we've already begun to talk about what next after we've reconnected with God and with each other. Now, let's not lose any of that language of reconnection. Let's just keep it moving forward. But can I encourage us, as the whatever next looks like, that we get in our sights this big ministry that Jesus calls us to? This yes and yes and yes ministry. It's exciting stuff. It is really hard to get the balance right. But if we do, just like John Wesley did, we will start to see, yes, people saved, absolutely. We will start to see families transformed. We will see poverty reduced. We will see spiritual eyes open. We will see people freed from sin. We will see people forgiven. In effect, we will see jubilee. We will see what Leviticus talks about. So I just wonder... Would we drive Jesus away? Would we respond in the same way as the people in the synagogue? John Cleese, um, not somebody I would normally look to for a spiritual quote, um, but in another interview that took place this week, a rather surreal interview, he was being interviewed by Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they had this really fascinating conversation. And, and John Wesley, not John Wesley, John Cleese, <coughs> don't get those two messed up, you would end up in a very odd place. He said this, he said, why do religions start with mystics and end up with bureaucrats? 
let me say that again. Why do religions always start with mystics and end up with bureaucrats? Now, Jesus is not a mystic. Let, let's just dismiss that. But let, let's just think for a moment. Why is it so often that like, when you get Jesus and he comes with this incredibly radical agenda of the kingdom of God, do we then try and reduce it down to institutional type stuff? I think that's what he's asking. I think that's what he's asking. Why is it that Jesus comes and he preaches this life-changing message of the kingdom of God? And yet 2,000 years, we are left with 45,000 denominations of Christians who can't agree with one another about who Jesus is, basically. Why is it that that happens? It's human nature, isn't it? We cloud everything down and we pull everything in. Now, I wonder, do we often cling on to our institutions rather than cling on to Jesus? Stuart, yesterday, was talking about gazing on Jesus. Just simply gazing on Jesus. Gazing on him. Just in awe and wonder, saying, look who he is. Look who he's calling us. Would we welcome the Jesus of Luke chapter 4? Now, we might say, well, of course we would. But I can only answer for myself. I'm not so sure I would, actually. I'm not so sure if somebody stood up in a worship service and said the things that Jesus did, that I would react any differently than the crowd had done here. I'm not sure if, if Jesus came into our church and taught us in the same way, whether I would actually instinctively say, yes, I'm on board with this. I would probably be questioning and thinking, what's this all about? It really struck me the other week when Scott was preaching about John the Baptist. I don't think I'd have found John the Baptist's ministry easy either. That would have come as a bit abrasive and a bit of a shock. But actually, the reason for that is because I don't want to be deeply challenged. We don't want to be deeply challenged. The message of Jubilee, the hope of the coming kingdom, cannot be fit, fitted into two or three hours of our time each week. It's either all in or we don't accept it. That is essentially what Jesus offers us. It's an either all-in message for complete transformation of the human condition, or we're getting something wrong. So can I encourage us today to do nothing more than gaze on the Jesus of Luke chapter 4 and say, is this the ministry that I'm involved in? Is this the ministry that we're involved in? It's not an either-or, it's not social or spiritual, but it's all together. God cares about us in the complete human condition and he calls us forward into freedom. That's the Jesus of Luke chapter 4. Let me just pray for us. Lord, I just thank you for this absolutely phenomenal passage of scripture. And as we approach communion, when we remember the great sacrifice that you paid so that the powers, so that sin, so that my sin could be defeated, that once again we would just gaze in awe at you as to who you are, as to what you call us to be and to do, to the great rescue that you have brought about. And Lord, forgive us when we try and box you in. Forgive us when we try and make the gospel into something that actually you didn't proclaim. Forgive us when we reduce you to just a couple of hours here and there, rather than spilling out into exactly who we are. So Lord, over these coming weeks, as we approach this summertime, help us to just fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.